Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. On today's episode, we have Sarah Borjas. Sarah is a Fresno poet. Her debut collection of poetry, Heart Like a Window, Mouth Like a Cliff, was published by Naomi Press in 2019 as a part of their Acrylica series and received a 2020 American Book Award. Her work can be also found at Plowshares, The Rumpus, Poem a Day by the Academy of, the Academy of American Poets, and The Offing, amongst others. She is a lecturer in the Department of Creative Writing at UC Riverside, where she works with innovative undergraduate writers. As always, you can support the podcast on Patreon by making a financial contribution or by leaving us a rating and review. Let's go meet Sarah, and Baker will take us there. To the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. All right. So, Sarah, when you're here, where do you like to eat in Fresno? When I'm here, my favorite places to eat are La Legante, Kunisama. I love going to Central Fish Market, my mom, my sister, uh, Pimani's and Tower. And like if I'm feeling fancy, I like to go to Eroya. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Piemontes has a lot of sandwiches. What do you order when you go there? You know what? It's like, I'm, I'm just whatever I'm in the mood for. It just depends. Like I tend to be in the mood for something salty. So I'll go some like straight Italian way, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, it just depends on the mood. Really? Yeah, I, I feel like people in Fresno eat not, I mean, no offense to this place cause it's good, but pe- people in Fresno eat too much deli delicious and they need to, they need to expand their sandwich horizons. Because Deli Delicious is is good, but it's it's I'm just gonna say something blasphemous. It's a little basic. Um, yeah. And Piemonte's you get you get that kind of more real Italian uh, um, Italian style bakery sandwiches, you know, with the kind of the different cuts of meat. I, I will say one thing that's missing, and I uh, was talking to one of our local rabbis on the show uh, a few episodes ago. You know. Fresno really could use a good Jewish deli. I'm just yeah. going to put it out there. I think that could be, I think that's one of the things that's missing. Um, but what was that last place that you mentioned uh, when you're feeling fancy? Yeah, you know what? Well, just to say on Pimani's too, it's it's like local and family owned, you know? And yeah. deli, when I moved out of Fresno, Deli Delicious wasn't here. Then I came back and Deli Delicious is here. And I was like, so what? <laughs> But, but um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's like a rage and I really wonder why, you know, too. Uh, regarding Eroya, um, it's a teppanyaki spot on Shaw uh, Marks, I want to think, by that Target. And okay. uh, it's just, you know, it was somewhere we would go to celebrate something, you know, to kind of interact with the chef. And when I was younger, I had friends who were chefs there, so I would go there and bug them. You know, and it's a little more on the expensive side. So it, it was considered, you know, an a, occasional restaurant. Um, and I like to go there whenever, you know, I want to celebrate something. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So um, I've gone to Sakura Chaya more, uh, which is a little bit north of that. North of that. But um, for, for me and my partner, the, 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 the main event is this spicy sauce that they put on whatever you exactly. order. <laughs> exactly. I, you just like, and so one time I was feeling like, 
I wanted to show off to my in-laws. And so, you know, I just walked in there and was like, I want to buy a gallon of your spicy sauce. How much I got to pay for that? And I think it was like, it was obscene. It was like $25 they charged me for this big old vat of like oil and goo and stuff. And it maybe lasted a couple of weeks, but I literally ate it on everything. It was on every, it was on eggs. It was on sandwiches, just vegetables, just had no point being on. It was on them. So I, for me, that's like, whenever I think teppanyaki, it's the sauce, but what is, what is, what is, is it the same for you? Um, okay. So when we first started going to Edo Yas, cause Edo Yas is like the original teppanyaki in Fresno, other than Japanese kitchen, there's Japanese right. kitchen, Edo Ya and the Sakurachaya and Kunisama are the like, you know, the next generation, but they didn't really, I didn't, if they had it, I didn't know about it. I'll just say that. But now that I know about it, they definitely have it. Cause I ask for it. <laughs> it's always there. It's, it's hard once you've tasted it to go back, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like some Adam and Eve shit, you know, like eating that apple, like we're, <laughs> we're gone. We're out. Sorry, God. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's with that with a lot of things. There's a lot of restaurants that I know, like where I, you know, tasted something and then it's just hard to go back. Like, you know, yeah. it's, like, it's like with, um, I was just, I was on a kick this week making Middle Eastern food and I really have been working on my hummus to like make it more kind of authentic and less like that you know, kind of bean paste that Trader Joe's sells. Yeah. And so I finally got that fluffiness and was like, when me and my partner tasted it, it was like, oh, that's what it's like. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, all you're like, how did I eat these other things for so long? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I, um, I read this uh, amazing quotation about you by, um, I, will, I would say, Fresno Royalty to say the least, about this person. Um, and uh, for those who don't know who Juan Felipe Herrera is, who, who, who is he? Um, and if you live in Fresno, why should you be ashamed not to know who he is? <laughs> well, Juan Felipe Herrera is, um, was, is from Fowler, Selma area. He became the first poet laureate, first Chicano poet laureate of the United States and served two terms, um, appointed by Barack Obama. And he's, he's really just um, kind of one of the pioneers, like making space for Latinx folks in po poetry. And really in, I guess like the link between poetry and social justice, you know, I think Sometimes folks who don't know too much about the history of poetry um, don't understand that. And when you see Juan Felipe or read Juan Felipe, um, it's inherent in his work. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I wouldn't be ashamed if you don't know about him because why, why, the, why the heck should we know? You know, we weren't taught it. We didn't, I didn't read a Brown author until I was about to graduate college. Um, so I wouldn't be ashamed about it. But now that I know, I, I, I look back and say, well, why was our, my canon so narrow? Yeah. Now look them up. Yeah. So maybe my shaming is really a motivational tool um, yeah. or then something to feel bad about. Um, but he, he said something inter interesting about you. He said, uh, Sarah is the poem. Mm -hmm. When he was talking about you, what, what does he mean when he says you're the poem? You know, 
So, you know, if you're listening and now you're like, who the heck is Juan? And you look up Juan Felipe Herrera, you look up his work, you look him up on YouTube, you'll see how enigmatic he is. So I, I don't know that I can say what he means and what I can add to calling the poet the poem itself is kind of a stance on what Juan's philosophy about what poems are, what poems do. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, in, for me, thinking about what where Juan might be saying or considering is that, you know, in, in poems, um, poem is a conversation with the self, right? A poem is something where you find a, a poet arguing with their own perceptions. So what Juan said is, you know, I'm arguing with ghosts, you know, and they are because they're my ghosts, they're, they're my mom, my dad, my brother, my grandma, but they're my own perceptions of them. And so they're not the poem. My arguing with my own perceptions is the poem, which therefore makes me the poem. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think about, you know, like I, I, one of the things that I did over, uh, you know, this time in quarantine, uh, speaking of white authors, um, I read, it's, it's always been on one of my lists to read Middlemarch, um, which mm -hmm. I, I did that shit. I did it. Um, I, you. I love middle March. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's something like, it's like 900 pages mm -hmm. of high Victorian literature. And, you know, when I think about George Eliot and I think about the characters, you know, I mean, in some ways, you know, they are, they are, they create these characters and these characters seem to have a life of their own. I mean, obviously we don't know much about George Eliot, um, or less so than a modern author who might do interviews or something. Um, but there is this in novels, short stories, there's kind of this separation, uh, between the art and the artist. Um, mm -hmm. but it's different in poetry, right? Um, the art and the artist are so mixed up. So I guess my question is, is what do you view as the relationship for you between the art and the artist? Well, I guess I can, I'm going to speak as a poet only because um, that's the only like subjectivity I hold. So, but as a poet, I, you know, all, if you're in all poems, like for me, when I'm, when I'm in there looking, like looking into my own life, like asking questions about my own life. Um, I can't speak from anywhere but me. And I, I feel like sometimes, not sometimes, but if I were to deny that, the poem would become less sincere and maybe even untrue in some places. And for me, there there is no difference. Even if, I, if I'm writing a persona poem, it's not you know, I just recently published a poem um, on the Fresno 15 uh, Creative Writing Marathon for Fresno State in the voice of my mother. But ultimately, it's never going to be my mother. It'll always be a translation of my mother through me. And so there really cannot be, um, you can't make a person twice, right? You can only get as close as you can to translating that experience or for fiction or prose writers, like imagining an experience, but you can never make the actual human experience. It will always be some slight version of it. Um, I think poets just tend to admit that more. And I think, you know, even if you're writing 
prose and fiction characters, there's always some version of yourself in them as far as like the desires and the questions that can only be imagined in them because they're first like imagined in you, the writer. Yeah. Can you, can you speak for a second uh, about personas? Cause I feel like that's something, you know, a lot of early poets are like kind of tasked to think about, which is developing a persona. And for those who don't know in poetry, you know, poets kind of develop, I don't know if you'd call it a character exactly, but like a point of view maybe. So can you talk about what a persona is and how important do you think it is for like a young poet to develop a persona? Um, so you, I feel like we can think of it different ways, like a persona, when I mean persona, I guess I mean like, um, you're speaking through like, um, some type of like crystallized personality or like assumed character um, in which that can be you or that could be someone else. Uh, for me, it's always, you know, if I'm saying persona, I'm, I'm usually speaking, trying to speak in someone else's voice, but I, poets, um, <laughs> I think artists generally kind of create personas, right? Like, or this type of like, um, performance you know and which right. i think it's really it's it's my sense is it's connected to ego it's also connected to really wanting to be accepted you know and so what do i do how do i perform myself in a way that is acceptable to this like maybe this industry or maybe this community or maybe academia or whatever poetry community you're really um related to or rela relating in but my advice to a student who's developing is to not develop a, a persona necessarily but to stop lying to yourself about who you are and what you think and what you don't know you know i think especially when I encounter college students, my college, my students tend to be undergrads. They're, they're really practicing like knowing shit for the first time, you know, and they're getting this confidence as they, they learn things, which I love and which is good. But when you come to poetry, you better humble up because that poem is going to be a confirmation rather than a questioning. And that, um, depending on how you think, like one, a poem behaves or what a poem is might not make you a poet. So I would just stay humble and I would always ask, as soon as you think you know, why do you think you know that? And how do you feel about that is what I would encourage them to ask. Yeah, I think to yeah, a lot of good art comes comes at, you know, trying to get rid of preconceptions, get rid of, you know, a lot of the knowledge that you accumulate and try to come back to it honestly and almost naively in some ways. I feel like a lot of poet poetry that I enjoy is a, kind of a poetry of discovery in some ways. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's such a challenge because you, you know, when you're in school, you're given a lot of these, you know, this amazing poetry to read and then, you know, because we're not, we don't, you know, asking kids to write a novel is not something that we do all that often, but writing a poem is something that, you know, I remember doing that when I was really young. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you view, 
we're kind of going off my outline a little bit, but I'm just curious, how do you view uh, teaching, teaching children form? It could be college students or it could be younger. Um, teaching kids form as a way to get them started. Form. Okay. So form when I first, when I first started, I was like, no thanks on the form because I only, my perspective and my experience was that it was used as a gate. Right. And they were like, if you want to be a poet, you better write a sonnet and it better sound, it better rhyme, it better do this. And, um, that's just not like, that's old and tired. <laughs> and it's not that it can't happen. Like there's some beautiful forms being written, but that was my perspective at the time. I saw it more as a threat. Um, I saw it more as like an oppressive tactic to, um, assimilate, right. Assimilate creatively. And the more practice I've had, the more I've learned to view form more as like, like a map or a guide. And you don't have to do it. I think that's what changes. Like when I was in school, I was learning that you had to do it. You had to write traditional forms. Otherwise, you know, that wasn't really a poem. And now I'm like, oh, it's, it doesn't matter. It's just a tool for you. And so form can be used when you have something big, where you have like a big old question. And you're like, I don't even know how to approach this in the first place. You can look up a form like a sonnet or like a huzzle and say, how can I fit this into this map? Because that is already laid out for me. That tells me how to jump and leap like logically through this question I have. And if anything, it helps you um, see what you think. And it may not stay in that form, but it's such a useful tool to contain, you know, those big abstractions that, you know, we artists like to you know, attend to <laughs> like, what is war? You know, what is beauty? Like who deserves love and why we can, I, I don't want to even know where to start with that, but I do know how to write a pantoum. So it just makes it a little bit more graspable. Yeah. So uh, in, in my profession, which is teaching um, specifically K-12, you know, there's this kind of mythology that, you know, there are certain people that are just born teachers, you know, um, and that they, you know, in, in grade school, they just say, they just know that they want to be teachers and they have this passion that comes from this kind of inherent identity. Um, and I feel like there's kind of like a similar discourse around uh, being a poet, um, you know, kind of like this almost Nietzschean thing about, you know, that there's just these aesthetic people that just exist um, in the wild. Um, and so I guess my question is, do you, do you believe that we can teach someone to be a poet or is being a poet kind of like a, an outcome of a set of experiences? So I think about um, one of my, uh, friends uh, from college, he was a, a creative writing major and he had a professor tell him, uh, uh, his name was John, you, you haven't lived any life yet, so you have nothing to write. Um, and so after he graduated from college, he moved uh, to Los Angeles and got a job as a plumber um, and then started just writing some of the best work he's, he'd done. Um, just by living his life. 
And so I guess, yeah, my, my question is, is do you need those? Uh, is, is a, okay. It's a complex question, which is, can no, it's you, cool. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Can you teach someone to be a poet or do they need to have those kind of life experiences in order to really write with any kind of integrity or, you know, well, I don't know. I'll say, you know, if you're born, you have life experience. <laughs> like, right. If you're living, you have life experiences. Now, whether you recognize that or not, it, that, that depends. And maybe that, you know, homeboy telling a friend that was that they didn't, they maybe didn't look before or didn't know where to look. And so maybe, you know, it depends like everybody can be a poet. And I think everybody is a poet in a way, depending on how much they're like willing to search and ask for about their own lives. I, I do think that, um, you don't have to be born a poet. And I think uh, kind of lending that like wanderlust, like, um, you know, kind of wild genius, sentimental is, is a romantic romanticization of the artist, which I think also kind of is related to things like the artist as like, an addict or the artist as an alcoholic. Everyone talks about Charles Bukowski and how he was a drunk and an artist. And, you know, the one thing that I try to tell my students is like, um, alcoholism isn't a style. <laughs> it, it's a disease. Right. It doesn't mean not a poet, but it's also not a tenant um, or a feature of poetry. So I think it could be uh, dangerous to romanticize poetry in that way. But I would say if, in my experience, I became a poet because I was hella desperate. I had a lot of questions and I had a lot of um, uncertainty. And so can you teach someone to be a poet? No, but they could probably teach themselves if they're willing and someone is in their life to, to guide them. And I would also just, um, you know, ask, I tell my students and I tell myself all the time, like, what is a poet? According to me, you know, how does my life and my own positionalities and my various identities um, influence what I think a poet is and can be? And then why would I want to define it in that way? Who does it serve? because I don't want them to abide by some invisible standard and then try to amount to that invisible standard. Um, Cause it can be dangerous and it could also be um, like erasing in that way. And so anyone could be a poet, but I think the other question is what is a poet and what is poetry? What does a poem do? And if you can do that, then you're a poet. Yeah. So I want to change gears a little bit. Um, so there's a phrase on your website, and I hope I pronounce it correctly. It's Chicanex Pocha, right? Correct. Aha. Um, um, can you tell us what that phrase means? And then kind of relatedly, can you talk a little bit about uh, what people uh, misunderstand or misconceive about 
the relationship between Mexico and the United States and their history? Because it seems like in, in kind of inherent in that phrase, there's, uh, there's kind of a, an argument about history as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Chicanx is just um, a way to say Mexican-American. Um, so um, the X is on the front and the end. The X in the front is to pay homage to um, indigenous roots. And the X at the end is to deny gendering, uh, which you know we didn't really have. Indigenous folks didn't have until, uh, you know, they were colonized. And so that's what the X's serve. And, and if you, there's a really beautiful essay um, by Alan Lopez called um, The X and Latinx, that if you're interested in uh, looking up what the possibilities of the X might mean for anybody who uses it, um, it's a really beautiful short essay. You can Google it. And pocha means um, like a highly assimilated or aligned a Mexican American who's aligned with whiteness. It is derogatory. So uh, don't use it. <laughs> and uh, especially if you're a white, don't use it. If you're not, not Chicanx, don't use it. Um, but it just means you're a Mexican who forgot where you came from. And so I had a friend who told me that I was a pocha and I didn't know what that meant because I thought it was Spanish and I don't speak Spanish. So I was like laughing along because I was too ashamed to ask. And then when I figured out she was just saying I was whitewashed, I was like, okay, well, she's not wrong. (laughs) So I'm not mad at it. Um, But then I had to go in and say, well, why is she not wrong? And why am I supposed to feel bad? And why do I not feel bad? What I figured out was that um, I don't feel bad because it's not my fault that I'm aligned. It's not my fault that um, people of color in order to survive, had to become white or align with whiteness in some form to, um, you know, unfortunately, like, grasps that, that power and that privilege that comes along with performing whiteness. Um, so it's not a choice that I made rather than an ad- adaptation that I made and that all my ancestors made. And I think probably... I I don't know too much about history as far as like border or um, Mexico, but what I do know is that a big misconception I've noticed just as a citizen who values history and pays attention to things is that there really is no such thing. There is no such thing as white people or white culture and there's only white supremacy and the term white was created to me, non-black, you know, before you were white, I would, you know, ask my students, what were you? Um, Cause you don't have your name either. And I think people who think they're white, you know, misunderstand who they are. Just like when I have thought I was white for so long or I aligned whiteness, I had to ask like, what does that actually mean? Um, and I, I don't think any of us have really been empowered to confront who we are or to confront whiteness, um, and that's not our fault. But if we know now, uh, we can start to learn. Um, but we have to acknowledge the history of the United States, uh, which used to be Mexico, <laughs> and um, is not no longer Mexico, 
um, through peaceful means. You know, it was stolen, looted. Uh, people were, were murdered. And I'm only here on this podcast speaking to you because a European raped an indigenous person multiple over and over and over again for centuries. And I'm raped into existence. So I can't change that. Um, but I also am not responsible for upholding it. So there's a lot of things I think we can talk about based on that. Um, I, but I want to kind of broaden this to think about the relationship between politics and poetry. I feel like there's this kind of, we're talking about misconceptions, you know, this conception of a poet, you know, kind of, you know, uh, like a Shelley or <laughs> like sitting in the woods, right? They're sitting yeah. in the woods. They've got like a little notebook. A nightingale uh, in the house, some daffodils, some lonely roads. Yeah. You know, and like Cinderella style, like a bird flies on the finger and like, you know, mm-hmm. they just kind of like, and then they get this like epiphany and they write these beautiful words about the meaning of beauty or whatever. But then, so you, you, you take that image and then you contrast that with, that amazing book that came out in 2014, uh, Citizen, an American Lyric, um, by Claudia. I think her last name is pronounced uh, Rankin. Rankin, right? Rankin. Um, and you contrast that with something like that, um, and it seems like I don't know what, what. Where where do you think this myth that uh, those <laughs> or what what's wrong with that stereotype? Uh, and I really want you to talk about how you see politics playing into poetry today. Cause I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but does it, it feels like politics and, uh, and poetry are kind of, or maybe they're just changing um, or maybe there's new voices that are being heard, but it feels like uh, poetry is becoming more explicitly political in a way that's good for us. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that conception? Um, I think poetry has always been politi- political. I mean, again it's like us it's not our fault but we just don't know history and that's not our fault that's um institutions that educate us that are rooted in racism um and then here we are trying to build off of it trying to like undo it um it really can't be undone we have to we have to 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 start somewhere new but politics and poetry are the same i mean everything is political every single thing you do is political and if you read the Bible and you read the verses and religion, that shit's political. You know, they're not there to tell a beautiful story. There is some influence, right? There is some, you can, why is there two Genesis stories? Why are they all these um, kind of platforms for particular values and platforms for, I think, in the, especially the Old Testament, like just mad violence. Um, those are poems. Those are, those things are literature and they were always meant to shift power. And I think it's the fact that just folks don't know that why it might now seem as um, a change. Um, and also I think to in publishing, um, we're starting to call out the lack of representation. You know, there really is no reason why publishing industry is 89% white 
that that doesn't that doesn't make any sense um, if it's you know a equitable um, <laughs> industry invested in um, humanity and humanizing folks and so what's changing is that we're calling it out we're calling people in um, and folks are stepping up here and folks are fucking fighting till their last breath trying to hold on to a privilege that they never earned or deserve and there's a poem by um, Jameson Fitzpatrick called um, I Woke Up. And in that poem, he just lists everything he does in his day. And, but he ends every line with, and it was political. So he says like, I woke up and it was political. I drank this type of coffee versus that type of coffee. And it was political. Who I thought was cute on the bus was political. What I read that day was political. The fact that I had a dream that I could be a writer was political. And, um, it's not that those poems about nature or a flora a nightingale um, are not political, but that we see choosing to attend to a flower and only a flower, you know, the fact that we, we see that and we don't think that it's a conscious choice, um, just kind of says more about what we what we think of as political. I think that if you want, you know, if you have the privilege to think about a flower, great. That's political. If you are choosing to think about a flower because you are falling apart inside and you need something to hold on to, that is political. If you choose joy when there's suffering around you or you choose to resist something, um, that is also political. And I would recommend folks who are interested in reading like um, Rio Cortez has a beautiful poem on Poma Day that is a nature poem, but is clearly political. Um, reading books um, and work by Kava Akbar, which is highly spiritual. Um, and I just think that if we're doing something and putting value on something, there is a shift in power, at least to us in that moment. And that is political. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I, <laughs> as, as someone uh, who is white of European ancestry, um, you know, I, 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 the other day I was, I was looking at my bookshelf um, and I realized that I have a white supremacist bookshelf, <laughs> you know, like, all do. <laughs> Like I looked, I looked at my spines and I was like, Oh You're like, my oh, shit. God. Like if, <laughs> if it's either it's, it's either written by white people or um, even if there is someone, you know, uh, a story about someone not white on there, it's written from the, the writer is white. Like I was looking cause I was, I recently kind of reread the color of law, which is a great book about uh, redlining. Um, and then I looked at the author, and, you know, <laughs> his last name's Rothstein. Um, so, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you can, you know, it's, it's guilt all around you. And I, I, you know, I had a conversation with DJ Kreiner um, on this podcast and he, he's obviously thought a lot about, you know, these issues and we were talking about it. And I think the, the, for me, 
a lot of my thinking and work is is how how to communicate this uh, to white people, you know, as being a white person, and I feel like you know the least I I can do is to try to communicate. And I I we were talking about reparations specifically, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of in the in the line of what we're talking about in terms of undeserved um, you know kind of privileges, and I compared it to um, uh, imagine there's this man who robs a bank. Um, and gets away with it. He puts all the money in a safe and then he gives that money to his kids when they die. And it's so much money that for generations, that family was able to go to college and buy homes with that money. Um, And that money, you know, made them very successful, ethical, great people. Um, And then one day the FBI shows up and says, well, it was actually all a lie. um, And that money will need you to pay back. Um, And I think, you know, I think for some people, they're just so defensive. They just, they, like, it's like something, you know, because in, in some ways we are all products, right? Um, exactly. But, but if yeah. you don't recognize where your place in that story is, if you deny the story um, and pretend, oh, well, the, my great-grandfather, you know, he didn't steal that money or, or whatever, you know, it just, it it invalidates and it... This is the whole point because the whole point is not to just keep, you know, harping on you. It's for you to admit the story so we can try to fix what happened, right? <laughs> I, I, I think that's that. what the point is. I don't know. Yeah, I would say, I, I, you know, that's the thing. It's so hard. I mean, if I'm being super honest, like it's so hard for me to have those conversations with folks who are um, just aren't really ready to, to to be humble, you know, and I can't do that work of teaching like all the white people who want to challenge me um, all the time. Like that's not my job. Like, you know, and if I'm feeling generous, I will, or if I love you, I will. But um, what, what's ultimately sucks about, you know, the, the deflecting um, of, of willing to look at history and willing to, to, to say, you know, I'm a citizen in a society that is built on systems that I participate in. If you deny that story, you deny our nation's history, you deny your family, you deny yourself. Mm-hmm. That's why I say, like, when did you become white? And I'm not saying that to fuck up your life or to mess up your life. I'm sorry, but like, I'm saying that so you can start to confront who you are and that's something it's rich it's it's rich if you look at it but it's hard because you have you we feel like if we admit that then we we lose things but i don't there's so much to gain and we don't have to uphold the systems that we were born into right and it's it there's a lot to do as well with kind of this idea of earned or deserved right so there's this great book that just came out by this, you know, here we go. Another, another white book. <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, by Michael Sandel. He's a, a philosophy professor at Harvard and he does that famous uh, justice class at Harvard where he, you know, challenges all the super Harvard privileged kids to think yeah. about justice. Um, and, you know, obviously from his very kind of 
anyway, we don't have to go into his perspective, but he, he just published a book about meritocracy and how we have this kind of mythology about meritocracy in the United States, but it's actually all just, you know, it's basically a lie. Um, and that we're not really a meritocracy that, you know, there's a lot of people just given things um, and it's portrayed as being of merit. But I think a lot of people just, um, they feel like, if all of the things that they quote unquote worked for are called into question, then, you know, they just, it, it, I don't know if they feel deflated or what it is exactly. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like this, I, did I lose you? Totally. Sarah? I, I, I picked it up. Um, Okay. Sorry. My internet. So, you know, talk about, fucking evil in the world. Comcast is on my list. You know, I I don't often joke about terrorist acts, but you know, Comcast I do on a regular basis. So I'm guessing uh, you heard some of it. Basically what I was saying is, you know, there's this kind of like meritocracy myth that people get what they deserve in the world, which is, you know, in some ways it's a religious idea that is, is good because you want people to believe that if they do good in the world, good will come to them. You know, like it's not something, but it's also not true in some ways because bad things happen to people that don't deserve it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess we don't have to talk about this much more, but I, I think it's, I think it's, for me, it seems like it's, it's, it comes from this misguided understanding of merit and deserving. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. And, and it's not that, you know, um, it's not that people don't work hard. It's not that people don't struggle. It's that some people struggle more than others and it's nobody's choice. It's nobody's lack of, um, ethic or, you know, you know humanity. It's, it's how a system is set continue all these things Um, because that's where the meritocracy kicked in not because it was earned but because it was necessary to uphold that inequality right and it it attaches kind of this blanket mythology to it so if it's there it's there it's there for a reason right (laughs) Um, let's talk uh, I want to switch gears a little bit I sorry to cut you off but um, no no go for it I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, police. So I actually recently had um, on the uh, director of the Fresno Police Chaplains Organization. So he's basically he's the, you know, he runs the organization to send people out uh, when there's some kind of violent incident. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, I have a complicated relationship with police because I have, uh, friends who are police officers, um, and I come from a military family, but I also see the wreckage, particularly with related to military things that it does to people, including family members who, you know, have come back from things just, you know, mm-hmm. less of less human. Well, I don't want to say less human, but less like themselves, you know, it took something from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I'm I'm curious because you you have I mean it, it's it seems like you're advocating for something more than simply defunding but abolishing and I I'm curious you know if that you know so when we think about leftists you know there's there's a whole range of of views 
on the left about how to approach things. You know, there's kind of this revolutionary left that, um, you know, kind of like the uh, Zapatistas or something where you just kind of go and create your world, right? Um, and then there's kind of reformist leftists where they see the world as, you know, or capitalism is here to stay. Um, and it's just a matter of kind of incremental improvements. Um, so can you talk about how you distinguish between defunding and abolishing and is abolishing, do you think realistic? I mean, do you think that, uh, given kind of the conservative society that we live in, that would be possible? Well, it, it was possible at some point. (laughs) So it's got possible again. That's, that's really the basic thing I would tell people like, well, how could it possibly happen? I'm like, well, there was, you know, thousands of years where it also didn't happen. So it is possible. Um, we're so like, um, it's so insidious at this point, you know, it's that it's, it's hard to imagine. And I don't blame people for that, but there is a time where it didn't exist. And I would just keep that in mind. And if we, you know, we don't aim for it or we don't imagine it, then it can't happen. And that's what poets do. They preserve imagination and space for the things that we need and want for when the time should come around that we should or might be able to have them. I, when I think about those two terms about defunding or, or, or abolishing, I mean, they're, they're the same in that they both just demand serious change. Um, defunding, you know, just using that verb. I also, by the way, do um, union negotiation and contract bargaining. And so I really pay attention to a lot of like little language we use and I would be interested to, to see what, how the police um, and that chaplain um, uses language. But defunding well, really let, just means asking. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was gonna just tell you a phrase that he used, which I would be curious yeah. what your response would be. So one of the things that I brought up is I asked him, do you think it's possible that communities and police departments will trust each other again? And mm-hmm. one of the things that he said is he questioned the idea of whether um, we need there was there what? was this lack of trust to begin with, and um, whether it's kind of like a myth that there is a large segment of our population that mistrusts uh, police departments, and so that uh, was kind of a point of contention that we had. Um, whether it's you know whether activists have overstated whether people mistrust the police department. Well, it depends who the chaplain thinks is people. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you mean people who think they're white, then no, because they're being protected by these militarized, you know, public service. Um, and if you're not white or not privileged in any other way, then most likely you don't trust them because they have never served you. Um, defunding just means reallocating funds to social services that do serve people, all people, schools, art, welfare, housing security. You know, we're quick to pull money from arts programs. We're quick to pull money from like, (laughs) um, affordable housing. We're quick to pull money from health clinics, but we give more money to the police, which is a trip because you know, like nine out of 10 calls that go to police are for nonviolent incidents and police themselves admit that they're not trained to handle a lot of these 
incidents, especially like mental health incidents, would end up in somebody being killed sometimes, or the police feeling scared. If they were trained for those incidents, then they wouldn't have to feel scared. Yeah. You know, and that's, I don't, I wonder, that's where the poetry comes in. It's like, well, what do we ask about our own lives at this moment? You know, and abolitionists, as I understand, um, you know, view police as part of the prison industrial comp- <clears throat> industrial complex where um, we're looking to respond to crime in ways that does not involve locking people up, stealing their dignity, um, and dehumanizing them in solitary confinement. And in those um, perspectives, and I think my perspective is that if we had a model where society had community care as a tenant versus safety, then police would become unnecessary. And is it far off from imagination now? Yeah, of course it is. But um, I say we take little by little what we can. And over time, I mean, we're not going to do it in five years, what's been going on for 500 years. So I expect the same moving forward. But I don't think that we should not try. We have to try. Yeah. I mean, I I, I agree with you mostly. I, I think, you know, as someone that's kind of a, <laughs> a little bit of a, you know, I'm a public school teacher, so I, I, I see how organizations change, and particularly government organizations, and change is possible. It is just slow as hell. It is so <laughs> slow. It is just like, it is like a centipede on like a, on a, a treadmill going the opposite direction. It is just like you, but if you have the right binoculars or microscope you can see the change you just the patience it requires now i will say good things do happen so particularly today it's funny we're recording this today because uh it was announced uh san francisco police department said uh, announced that they're no longer going to respond to mental health calls and they're creating specific uh units within their organization uh, that are non-police to respond to those calls including mental health professionals so there there are certainly places that are doing things and that's kind of an exciting development um, and something that will be a good pilot for maybe other organizations to look at and say, well, maybe we don't need to show up with guns when someone's having a psychotic break because that probably won't end well. Um, so um, I want to finish by talking about poetry again, which is um, I like to end these by talking about uh, recommendations and where and who's inspiring you. Um, and so can you share a few poets working today that are inspiring you and then uh, where do you go to find uh, new and exciting poetry? Yeah, definitely. So poets um, that inspire me, I, I'm just so pumped up about all the forms like that are coming up, all the, all the experimental forms. You know, earlier when we spoke about forms, we were talking, I, I'm, I was centered on traditional forms, but there's so many innovative forms um, being played with. And some of those poets, are Marwa Halal, Vanessa Villarreal, uh, Laylee Long Soldier, uh, Diana Coywin, and Anthony Cody. Uh, they're just, they're, they have project books, and if you check them out, you'll see all the cool stuff they're doing. Um, sentence diagramming, footnoting, just, you know, scientific studies, 
um, doing like cutouts, just all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and other poets, Bridget Bianca, I would say Michael Torres and Carmen Jimenez Smith are kind of my go-tos. Um, I tend to find them. Um, there's a subscription called Palma Day, and it's um, funded by the Poetry um, Academy of American Poets. And if you Google Palma Day, you can sign up, and what will happen is they'll send you a poem every day of the week to your email. Um, by a contemporary poet and on the weekends there'll be old school poets so if you want to just get a little dose of poetry it's something that's being published that day that is such a good way to go there's also one called the slowdown um, that's a similar um, subscription you get a poem a day and otherwise um, i just on instagram i just stay connected if you see a poet you like see what they're reading see what they're up to um, and you can usually find that we're all pretty, pretty connected, um, that way. Can we, um, just collectively, uh, you know, like Jesus in the garden, share a few tears of blood, um, that Tracy K. Smith is ending her time on the slowdown at the end of October. I, I literally, it's like, as I make coffee, I listen to Tracy each morning and she's just so wonderful and the thought of not having her each morning, I understand she has a life and she can't, she's been doing this for a long time. So everyone deserves a break except for Tracy. She deserves no breaks. Um, and so this is, this is my call. Tracy, you know, I will help pay for the nanny uh, that you need to get your children breakfast as long as you keep doing the slowdown because I love it so much and it is such a daily rhythm. Yeah, I mean, I and, and those kinds of things, you know, the uh, Poetry Foundation and all those kinds of things, there's so many great ways to find poets. And actually when I interviewed Lee Herrick a, a few episodes ago, we talked about um, supporting uh, literary magazines as a way to both find new poetry, but also. So I had Lee Herrick on a few episodes ago and we talked about uh, supporting literary magazines is a way to both, you know, support the culture that you want to see uh, existing in the world, but also as a way to find kind of new poets. Cause that's where those, you know, kind of not, I don't want to say fledgling, but like, you know, artists that are kind of new in the, in the world, they start in those, those kind of literary magazines. Um, and, and so I, you know, beyond just the big ones like Kenyon or whatever, I, I recommend, you know, for what is it like $20 a year getting a quarterly lit mag and it's such a cool thing to support and it's a good way to find stuff as well. Totally. And even, you know, if you go look at um, the normal school online, which is Fresno State's literary magazine, they're one of the, they're doing cool shit all the time. And you, something else you could look up too is, um, you know, like book awards. So like yesterday was the American Book Awards. There's the National Book Awards. You can look up that list of finalists and winners and just check out that way, especially the American Book Awards, because those th those awards are meant um, to acknowledge those who have historically been unacknowledged. And if you look at that list, how beautiful that is. So you have like a Mary Baraka, Sherry Moraga, um, Lorne D. Cervantes, Carmen Jimenez Smith, Anthres Montoya, like, there's so many dope writers. If you're not aware and you want to get a dose, look there. And you Absolutely. know what? You look at our books, you'll see our epigraphs who we're dedicating stuff to. Look in the acknowledgments, um, look in the afters, and you'll find more there. Yeah. I, um, I, I 
tend to, I don't know why, but I tend to follow the Booker every year, the Booker Prize. And it led me to The Shadow King, which I'm reading right now, which is amazing. I don't know if you've heard about this book. It's, um, oh, it's on my shelf. Let's see. It's a, it's a story um, set in during the 1935 invasion of Ethiopia um, mm-hmm. by Mussolini. And it's just fabulous. And, you know, I, you know, being kind of out, you know, being in Fresno, it can sometimes feel a little bit isolating, particularly yeah. if you're kind of a more intellectual person. Um, and I mean, that's why we have the internet. I mean, use it. I mean, it's, it can connect you to so many interesting things and writers. I mean, it's, it's kind of your bridge a little bit to the rest of the world. And on that note, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you talking with me. And um, where can we find more of your work um, if people are interested in reading your poetry? Jordan, I, you can find me um, on Instagram at Sarah Borjas, it's S-A-R-A-B-O-R-H-A-Z, or my website, sarahborjas.com. Um, yeah, you hit me up on the internet. You can chat. I can send you some po- uh, poetry recs, too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. And until next time, have a safe and wonderful week. Fresno's best. Fresno's best.